Education Central Bank um, monetary policy, which will have it will have its impact, but will also be government spending less uh, and ensuring that uh, you know that the fiscal side of the equation is considered as part of the equation. Uh, and that is so important, I think, uh, and the UK is being forced into it, as you say, but um, I suspect we'll see this through the United States and other leading economies um, of the West in particular next year. OK, Toby. Well, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is Managing Director of Societe Generale. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets at the moment, down in Australia, uh, the SX200 currently up uh, 0.1%. It does look like here in Hong Kong, uh, we're going to see a little bit of a, a rebound after a couple of days of declines. The Hang Seng uh, looks set to add about 230 points, which will put it at about 18,320 at the open. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock uh, for, uh, for more Money Talk. Uh, stay tuned for Back Chat after the news with Janice Wong and Brian Wong. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Sunny periods, uh, the maximum temperature is going to be around 27 degrees. Sunny periods during the weekend as well, and then becoming cloudier gradually with a few showers in the following few days. Temperature right now is 24 degrees, and it's 82% relative humidity. Time's just gone 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida have held talks in Bangkok ahead of the APEC summit, which begins today. It's the first face-to-face meeting between the leaders of China and Japan in three years. State media reported that both sides agreed on the need to develop and stabilise bilateral relations and that high-level exchanges between the countries should be increased. Mr Kishida said he conveyed concerns to President Xi over peace in the Taiwan Strait. The UN Secretary-General has urged delegates at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt to agree to what he called an ambitious and credible deal to assist countries most vulnerable to damage from climate change. Antonio Guterres made the speech as today's deadline loomed and conference delegates remained stuck on several key issues. Richer nations are being asked to cover losses suffered by vulnerable regions battered by weather disasters. Some developing nations have threatened to walk away if countries, including Western powers, fail to meet their demands. We must have agreed solutions in front of us to respond to loss and damage, to close the emissions gap and to deliver on finance. The climate clock is ticking and trust keeps eroding. The parties at COP27 have a chance to make a difference here and now and I urge them to act and act quickly. The Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, has announced she will not seek re-election as the Democratic leader in the chamber as the Republicans take control of the House in January. Addressing fellow congressmen and women, the 82-year-old Miss Pelosi said it was time for the younger generation to take power. I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Ms. Pelosi, the first woman to hold the post, has become one of the most recognizable figures in American politics. She added that American democracy must be defended from forces that wished it harm. 
and the family of a nine-year-old boy killed on Wednesday during protests in Iran have accused the security forces of carrying out the attack. Kian Pirfalek was among seven people, including a 13-year-old child and a woman who died after being shot in the city of Izay. The Iranian authorities have called it a terrorist attack, but a man identifying himself as a family member have said that, said that Kian was shot by the security forces as he was being driven home by his father. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. This is Back Chat for Friday, November the 18th, and welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we're looking at turmoil in the cryptocurrency markets after crypto exchange FTX filed for bankruptcy protection last Friday, with an estimated 1 million customers and other investors facing total losses in the billions of dollars. On Sunday, Financial Secretary Paul Chan said the collapse of cryptocurrency-related companies one after another showed the need for greater platform transparency and regulatory compliance. Now, FTX was founded in Hong Kong in March 2019 by Sam Bankman-Fried, who moved the company's headquarters to the Bahamas in September last year because of the city's conservative regulatory approach to cryptocurrencies. Is this the beginning of the end for crypto or just another round of growing pains? Are creditors being well protected or do we need more regulation? And after 9.15 a.m. today, we'll find out why there's an eight-meter-tall gummy bear next to the Timsatoy clock tower. And at 9.25 a.m., we'll introduce a new feature, our daily quick hit on the action at the World Cup 2022 that kicks off on Sunday in Qatar. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call at 233-88266. All right, kicking off today's show, we'd like to welcome in our studio live, Jesse Coe, the general manager with Blockchain Solutions. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, we've got uh, in our Admiralty studio, Padre Walsh, who's a partner with Tenor DeWitt. Good morning, Padre. Good morning, Andrew. Good to be here. All right. And, uh, spreading out our guests all over the place on the phone, we've got Yetsu, co-founder and executive chairman of uh, Animoca Brands. Good morning, Yet. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, Janice. Let's go. Yeah. So, um, Mr. Ko, I mean, uh, now lots have been happening over the past week or so. Can you um, just help put into context for our listeners? Um, what is um, FTX? Uh, why did it fail? And uh, does it really matter? Great. Um, FTX was the second largest uh, exchange in the world. Um, at, it was, uh, like you mentioned, it was uh, started in Hong Kong um, and kind of ran um, out of Bahamas. Um, I think the most significant is uh, it, it literally uh, coined as a Lehman moment uh, mm. in the uh, crypto market. And it, it, it was very shocking, actually, to, to everyone because... Um, uh, if you recall, there was the whole Luna uh, incident uh, back then, and uh, so Luna Terra, another another company that collapsed. Correct, right? Yeah. Uh, that that's more of a, on a project side, right? And but you'd think um, with uh, SBF, we call them, um, kind of uh, doling out money, loans, to, you, know, you know, kind of helping rescuing everyone at that moment uh, back in May, uh, June. Um, you'd think he was very well capitalized. He's you know pretty much the big pockets, deep pockets to save everyone. So he and and obviously he was doing a lot of a uh, political maneuver on the U.S. side, you know, starting FTX U.S. So the image Se second biggest donor to the Democratic Party. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's big. So I, I think um, he was doing a lot of uh, things that that made him seem like you know he was 
a very you know kingpin deep pockets and and suddenly this um i think it all started with uh, a a kind of twitter um storm you know at least from from outside um with uh binance uh, ceo obviously and i think from that moment on a kind of um you know who's not wearing anything, you know. The, the. So, I mean, just, just to make it really clear to people who don't mm -hmm. know this space, so FTX was an exchange. People would put their tokens in there. They would trade tokens there, kind of, kind of like a stock exchange. Correct, yes. um, And this is the company that went down. As you say, it started with a, a tweet kind of casting aspersions on their solidity from Binance, which is a rival exchange. Correct, yes. But is also invested in them. Correct. Yes, they, they were the supposedly they were the first investor, uh, and uh, that that the very first moment when everyone caught attention was, ah, uh, there was a spat, and you know which which is quite normal um, uh, in in the crypto world, and then suddenly SPF come and saying, oh, it's come first full circle, right? They were the first mm -hmm. investors, and they seem to be last. So at that moment, everyone thought that you know Binance was going to go and go and rescue you know, um, and. Um, they did say they were going to buy them. Right. They did. Well, they did say change uh, not, Right. Um, they did say it's a non-binding agreement to to look into things, and then so everyone thought, okay, you know, it should be fine. You know, the merger, and then suddenly Binance came out and say, sorry, you know, can't do it. Uh, <laughs> um, obviously, obviously, it was very non-binding. Uh, much, much less so than Elon Musk and Twitter, Correct. where he ended Correct. up having to buy them. Good point. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's that's where it took us here, as in. We know FTX is uh, in now in bankruptcy, um, Chapter 11, at least in the US. So um, not looking any time soon for any of the creditors to be paid back. Right. And I think that has, um, I think the, the most important thing is, uh, the reason it's coined a Lehman moment is, is the contagion. I know people in the mm. industry said, you know, we really don't know who's, who's affected. We don't know who has, I don't know, it could be 50,000 US or 50 million US in, mm. in the FTX account and it's not moving. You know, they cannot, it just right. cannot be touched. Mm. Right, and the um, SFC here it mm -hmm. says um, that uh, there there's been a minimal impact on Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Why why is that? Um, well, I think it's minimal minimal impact is a I think it's a relative term, right? Obviously, um, mm. it's it is true that uh, because of Hong Kong's re regulations, um, it was uh, quote unquote harder um, for people to be fully invested or, or really uh, exposed to FTX as exchange, um, partly. FTX was a, a token only exchange, so mm. um, which is which kind of like Binance, right? So because of SFC regulations, you can't bank in. You can't say, oh, let me send money to the exchange or in, yeah. in however much amounts, right? So it's um, therefore it's actually much harder for the normal retail customer to go in. You know, it's not like your HSBC, it's not like your you know, security <coughs> sure. firms. So because it's a token only and, and you need to be kind of in the industry, you need to know how to exchange your fiat into um, crypto and then you can need that and then you can put money into the exchange. So that that actually actually has effect on making it you know, less um, retail oriented. Mm, yeah, too. Uh, you know, we asked in the opening beginning of the end, or is this just another is this just growing pains for the industry? I know you, you've been through something similar before. Well, yeah, I mean, if you compare it to where the industry was, say, four or five years ago, then, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is obviously growing pains. But I think the, the problem with FTX is it's not to be viewed as something that is sort of par of the course because it's outright fraud. Right. I mean, the problem, mm -hmm. the problem with FTX is it's not a case of Oh, they made a mistake. Oh, there was a protocol issue. Oh, it was even a hack, right? If you if you look at sort of the filings, if you look at you know what what the new CEO said, if you look at everything that Sam himself said, actually, you know, on Twitter, which is even more insane if you think about it, um, is he he perpetrated sort of absolute fraud right from the beginning. I mean, you know, creating a way in which tokens could be sort of a 
sort of uh, moved on, on the back end, you know, fraudulent accounting, no idea where the cash is. Uh, this is, you know, this is not a case, um, again, so I, I wouldn't call this a case of uh, an issue for crypto in the sense that the technology, um, uh, more to say that it has to do something with a case of basically, you know, probably, <laughs> arguably, maybe at least in the technology sector, the, the biggest fraud the industry has ever seen, right? And and, and I think the, the other thing is that, you know, um, the whole thing about blockchain is transparency. And the whole thing about blockchain also is that it's decentralized. And the failure of FTX is the fact that it is, in fact, quite the opposite, right? Because it is a centralized exchange. When you send money into FTX, you actually don't know what happens when it's inside, which is mm. why it was able to perpetrate the sort of this fraud. Whereas, actually, if everything that was on DeFi, the decentralized side, actually worked quite well. And the whole thing began to unravel because when when CZ basically was sort of uh, sort of questioning this and you know, basically saying that, saying that, you know, I'm going to sell my position, uh, and when there was a run on the bank, nobody could get any assurances that FTX actually had the reserve that it claimed it had. Uh, and then obviously it didn't, right? Uh, and it forced actually the other exchanges to go out and say, actually, we have this much money. Here's our wallet. Here's our cold store wallet. You can actually see it. And, and I think in some ways, even though, you know, regulation is, is going to have to come, uh, I think, faster as a result of this, uh, the, the fact that the other exchanges out there, like Binance and Crypto.com and so forth, have basically gone and revealed their basically sort of, um, uh, uh, sort of address locations where people can then actually look at it and audit it for themselves, is the beginning of trans- uh, the need for transparency. But the other thing, of course, is that it's pushed more people towards decentralization because nobody actually knows that they can trust decentralized exchanges. So, you know, sales of like Trezor and Ledger, which is the hardware wallet, have seen record highs as of late, right, because everyone's basically moving towards self-custody, which in a way you could say is a win for decentralization. But it is obviously, you know, uh, as mentioned before, a shock and, and a real disappointment because because um, SPF is someone who was supposed to be the good guy, right? And he was most prolific. It's not that a lot of people have invested in FTX in terms of retail, um, and the impact in terms of retail wasn't as great uh, as, say, you know, what happened with Terra or Three Arrows, because that was much more impactful in terms of the number of people affected. Sure. But it was the fact that he was supposed to be the institutional trust, right? He was supposed to be, you know, he's supposed to be the adult in the room. Turns out he was the worst guy in the room, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you're talking, there's a, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, as we would expect. Padre, um, you know, we talk about the legal dimensions of this. Uh, commitments were made by the company. We will not take customer money and lend it to our partner company. Uh, what other legal lines, and of course they did that, the exact thing they said they wouldn't do and legally shouldn't have been doing. What other legal lines have been crossed that are that are being uncovered as we go through this day by day? Uh, well, it's, it's it's going to be like an onion. You're going to peel different layers off in the course of the bankruptcy proceedings, and uh, probably each layer will bring tears to the eye. Mm-hmm. So, so in that sense, you know, the the legal lines. If you look at what's actually happened here, it's it's a, it's a failure of of governance. It's a failure of control. It's a failure of too much concentration of influence and decision-making in too few people. And when you have those circumstances, then, you know, what, what can happen is, is you have a crisis that arises. And usually in a crisis, you know, people will behave erratically. But if you've got systems in place, if you've got governance, control, and so forth, then people are more likely to follow the rules, uh, the rules that have been laid down and the powers dispersed. So in order to get concerted behavior for people to do things that are bad things, it becomes more difficult. So the basic thing of taking, uh, you know, client tokens, 
uh, or client assets, uh, lending them to a commonly owned but separate business without client authority, mm. uh, that's serious bad conduct. So, Is it illegal conduct? Quite likely. Quite okay. likely. We're... You know, I'm looking at a list of the investors starting in 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, people that kept putting money in this organization, Tiger Global Management, SoftBank, Temasek, you know, the big Singaporean uh, investment fund, Telstra from Australia, Teachers Venture. These people have uh, teams that do due diligence. They have lawyers that go over these, uh, you know, and then it gets, you know, 2021, BlackRock. These are not <laughs> sophisticated investors. How come they're not picking up on what's happening here? Well, questions can be asked about that because the due diligence uh, may have been at a paper level rather than at a deep level. And there is sometimes with due diligence uh, and business decision making that's based on it, uh, the decision makers might be looking for some form of confirmation bias. Like the business, it's a written in risky area. Um, but look at the trajectory, look at the future potential and take a punt. Yeah. So the it, it may well be that flags were shown in the course of due diligence, maybe not the specific flags that showed up in this particular, that led to the bankruptcy. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is what sways in respect of decision making, but there are, there are some of those investors who are, you know, embarrassed by what has happened in the past period of time. I mean, Giselle Buenchen, I'm going to give her a pass. I don't. But, but you, you, I think the, the other thing about due diligence is, is that it, due diligence is like a spot check in the same way that an audit is a spot check. Right. Uh, some of the serious uh, issues that have arisen have arisen in the course of the past, you know, eight, nine months. Um, and whether or not those issues were live issues uh, or would have been, you know, tapped in into a due diligence that was conducted before then, open question. Right. But maybe if I can add something to this, is that when you look at the revelations that have um, occurred, including some of the stuff that Sam himself said, it, it would seem quite obvious that uh, Sam himself basically created backdoors in which he was able to manipulate the system, right? So, so, so for me, this isn't the case uh, of, oh, well, you know, things turn bad and, you know, I accidentally, this is an accident of poor oversight and governance. I mean, it sounded to me quite premeditated. And so... The way I would look at this is, is that, you know, um, the investors were duped into this, from, from what I can tell, uh, or at least what we can look at externally. And even if you look at, for instance, the new CEO statement, you know, even though he doesn't go outright and say, say this, uh, it was, it was a, a, a history of these transactions, but not just that, but a history of basically um, sort of obfuscation of information. Um, and, and, you know, I guess, I guess it was just intentionally trying to sort of defraud people up to the point where hopefully he was, you know, maybe too big to fail. I don't know. Um, you know, so I, I think I think the other thing to point out on this one is, is that I don't think SPF was actually ever someone, uh, really someone who ever believed in crypto. He just used it as a mechanism. So he, he saw an opportunity to make money from this. He saw an opportunity to basically sort of take advantage of a system to sort of, you know, basically uh, obtain, you know, what he wanted perhaps out of it. But he wasn't really a believer in the system. He wasn't, you know, advocating for the kind of, and, and actually doing the kind of transparency that crypto is about. He wasn't putting things on ledger. He wasn't he actually. He wasn't doing anything that basically the industry was was vouching for. So, unfortunately, we had a, a very bad actor, basically sort of bamboozle people because he said the right things, but he never did the right things. And I think this is this uh, this is just a, a case where you know basically it's just fraud.
I, I mean, it's interesting. The new CEO was also brought in to clean up Enron, which, you know, a lot of respectable investors put a lot of money into to make it the biggest energy company in the world, and, you know, and everything looked fine until it didn't and deliberate fraud um, was uncovered. So maybe there's there's something there. Um, is this is this kind of a sign in a way like with with more people putting money in these? I remember five years ago, if you would meet young guys investing in cryptocurrencies, they would have their tokens in like seven or eight different platforms, right? Because they were fairly sophisticated. They knew that any one of them could go down and they spread it out. But as more people have come into this, are they more willing to just put all their tokens in one place, exposing themselves to more risk as, because we've got less sophisticated people coming in, say, a few years ago? Jesse, do you want to take um, a crack at that? I would say uh, in the you know, real crypto and in a decentralized way, um, I mean, I, I always advocate, you know, if you don't own your private keys, you don't own, you don't own the tokens. The, so, can you just quickly tell people sure. what a private key is? Um, obviously, in, in the, to, to create a wallet, you know, you have a public address, which you can show everyone. And then uh, come uh, associated with that is a private key, um, which is just a, a string of numbers. Um, it can be represented. A password, kind of. Yeah, a password. Kind it of. can be represented in 12... Uh, you know, 12 English words or 24 English words, depending on which kind of wallet you're using. Um, and in the industry, we say if you don't own your private keys, um, you don't own the crypto. Mm -hmm. um, so, and in the in the sense of a centralized exchange, you do not own the own the private keys. Mm. Which means anytime they close down, shut down, you know, whatever, it, it you're you're in the your your money is in the hands of the exchange that you know pretty much at any time, point in time, like a bank. Yeah, like a bank. Pretty but, much the same. But banks are heavily regulated compared to the central exchange that we were facing. So well, that, that is the difference. I've got an email from Henry Young. That's uh, a bit of a long one, so I'm going to try to condense a little. I wonder why those who invested in cryptocurrency were so greedy to delve into this funny money scheme. I don't understand much about those type of cryptocurrency. Fair. Uh, our money is hard-earned, but why could one put our hard-earned money into a muddy scheme that could be extremely volatile? <coughs> Even buying into stocks and the stock exchange is better than FTX. Uh, Henry thinks that they only have themselves to blame for getting their fingers or even bodies burnt. Besides the money involved, why were those FTX investors? They did not do their homework and due diligence. Um, I guess, as he says, he doesn't know much about the sector. So, I mean, why? Why do? Why are people still doing? Maybe it? I, I, I'll try on. Um, I actually know um, many people who are in the, especially uh, early twenties or, or a little younger. We're, we're going in sure. a different uh, age segment now. They don't look at stocks. They literally just go for crypto. Not interested. Um, yeah, not interested in, in the traditional financial market. And uh, partly because, you know, they, they're, they're more uh, risk appetite is higher. You know, they think the volatility is fun, blah, blah. And, and yeah, it, they just, their whole portfolio is just crypto and NFTs, literally. So we, and, and we have more and more, more of that coming, right? So the, all the teens and, and, um, and, but at the same time, um, it's, I do with this happening, and, and I do agree that there should be more regulations, but there should be re more regulations that is you know retail friendly and not just institutional investors, because you can't stop people from from you know going and investing what they want. So might as well make it you know retail friendly so that people won't be pushed to these you know unregulated exchange. Right, Padre uh, Yatsu, more regulation, or yeah. maybe maybe we should just have more sophisticated investors and not have people kind of go in unsophisticated, well, thinking so oh the regulation will save me. <laughs> so, what do you think? So I mean, maybe, I mean, there's two different philosophies there. So maybe you go first, and I'll, I'll come after. Jesse, you want to crack? Um, so, I, good to go? Yeah, I would say, um, yeah, I, I do agree. There should be more regulations um, that, but open to everyone instead mm -hmm. of, let's say, oh, you need to be a BAPI, a professional investor, and and, and then because precisely, um, if if you just block out the, a bunch of people, then people will just go into 
on regular exchange. Sure. So, so no, we'll, no qualified that, investors. Well, yeah. yeah. Sorry. But, but I, mean, I think the, sorry. What I want to just add to that is that you know the, the reason you know cryptocurrency is you know not not the reason why blockchain is actually useful here. I think the point on this one is that cryptocurrency is one element in what blockchain provides. Right. The, the real thing that happens with you know what's described as Web three here. Uh, and so the decentralized system is the benefit of digital ownership, true digital ownership, right? And so one of those expressions is the fact that you can happen to own a cryptocurrency, say like a Bitcoin, as something that you can own freely away from a central authority, um, you know, say like a bank, for instance. You, you, know, you can transact Bitcoin, for instance, without actually needing an intermediary because the data as a structure is basically in a public ledger as opposed to in a private one, which can be controlled by someone else, right? That's, that's the principle behind it. And so the exciting reason why, you know, to, to the earlier point about why the young people appreciate this is because they are digitally native. So, for instance, when you think about an industry like gaming, right, there's 3.4 billion people in the world that are playing games. They believe that they should be owning the digital items and digital assets, right? When they're spending all the time playing games, when they buy a skin, actually it doesn't belong to them. It actually belongs to the game studio and they control it. Or if you're using Facebook or Instagram, that handle, you know, you, may have, you might have a million followers on Instagram. That's not your handle. You don't own it. Mm. Facebook owns it, and they can take it away from you anytime they want, right? Sure. So, so the reason why, you know, let's call it the, this generation is excited about this is because they want digital sovereignty. And cryptocurrency happens to be sort of one element of that sovereignty, but it's not the final one. Sort of, I guess, the portrayal of FTX is the fact that they were saying that, but they were actually weren't doing it, right? And because they were actually centralized. They were actually acting exactly in the way that these Web2 companies do by controlling everything and abusing it, except, of course, in this case, perpetrating absolute fraud. But, but that's the difference here between it. And so for people who don't understand it, it's because they, they don't understand maybe that digital ownership is a thing that is actually really possible now because of the decentralized ledger, because it can't be taken away. This is the point here, right? Yeah. Uh, for instance, I can delete your identity on Facebook, but you know, Facebook can just simply sort of delete you and you're gone. Your Instagram account, gone, right? You just, you, as if you never existed. But on blockchain, you can't do that. That includes your digital assets. I could see the appeal of that. Padre, what do you think? Uh, re regulate up to the level of the traditional finance system? Or, or should, it, should we allow more space for creativity? Well, here's the, here's the thing about regulation. Uh, regulation is the problem and the solution. It's a bit like Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, so if, if you look at it in, in, in this sense, if you'd ask the question about regulation in Hong Kong, for instance, say nine months ago, the answer or the, you know, the, the, the comment would have been that we'd pitched regulation uh, at too high and too strict a level and it was a problem. You ask the same question now, and you might say, oh, well, Hong Kong has actually pitched things absolutely right. Maybe we shouldn't change too much. And actually, both of those positions are probably not fully correct in either sense, because what you have is an evolving story where you have innovation on the one side and regulation on the other side. If you, get, if you give uh, too much uh, free reign to innovation, you cause certain kinds of problems. If you uh, pull those reins too tightly with the regulation, you get a whole set of other problems. The, so in terms of you know, calls for regulation, I don't think there'll be anyone in the industry or anyone in terms of being a stakeholder who would, say, who would disagree with that. The real question, the real issue is, is what kind of regulation? And it's, it should be regulation that is customized for the particular type of either, if it's a, a, a crypto product or whatever it may be, that it's tailored to the particular uses that are coming through.
Because mm -hmm. in Hong Kong right now, as we said earlier, uh, if you look like a security, you get regulated like a security, and everything else is kind of free flow. Yeah. Right yep. now, not regulated. Fair. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that that will change too. Also, in the uh, in the first or second quarter of next year, because uh, there will be uh, vast legislation which will regulate. Uh, virtual asset exchanges that are not dealing in securities. So it, it is beginning to change in that sense. But in, in, as a general uh, statement, yeah, that's broadly correct. So vir virtual assets that are not securities, you mean like NFTs? Uh, well, NFTs will be excluded from that also because they're a different type of uh, crypto asset. This is, this is actually the point, Andrew, uh, is that there are different things and you regulate each of them according to what their characters are, characteristics are. If you, if you come in something, regulation and law in general, it's a very, very blunt instrument. Mm -hmm. And it has unintended effects in respect of the growth and development of an industry. This is where, in terms of, you know, in terms of what kind of regulation is needed, you need to take a medium to long-term view, not a knee-jerk reaction. So the, the, the idea that regulation will come fast, to me, that's a concern. It should be a situation where you've got uh, industry stakeholders, legislators, uh, and other professionals working together to create a, a vision in respect of what the rules should be and then applying those rules in a sensible medium to long-term view so that there's convergence in different key places around the world. It's not a Hong Kong issue, it's not a Bahamas issue, it's not a US issue, it's, it's really a global issue. So you don't get the kind of regulatory arbitrage that allows uh, you know, there to essentially do the same thing, but according to one set of rules in one place and a different set of rules or no rules in another place. That's, that's the bit that you have to really get right because if you get it wrong, the market will answer and people will go to more dangerous places because it gives them more freedom and that doesn't help anybody. Fair enough. We're going to have some more of those views after the break. All three of our guests are going to be staying with us in this, this uh, super interesting topic. I'm going to give you a quick hit of the weather before we go to the news at the top of the hour. Uh, we're looking at sunny periods with a maximum temperature of around 27 degrees today, getting hot again. Uh, right now we're at humidity 80% and temperature 24 degrees Celsius. As could be expected at a very challenging time. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And we're back on Backchat. I'm Andrew Work here with Janice Wong, and we've got three guests today with us talking about cryptocurrency. We've got Jesse Coe, General Manager for Blockchain Solutions, Padre Walsh, partner at the law firm Tenerwit, and Yetsu, co-founder and executive chairman, Anamoka Brands. Um, gentlemen, you know, uh, at the top of the show, Jesse, you used, uh, you kind of referred to a Lehman Brothers moment, contagion, but I mean, this doesn't pose the same kind of threat to the global economic system right now. I mean, Amazon has a bad day at the end of uh, October, $200 billion of value gets wiped off of their, co their value, one company. Um, FTX may, had an $8 billion valuation at one point. Uh, I mean, it, it, we're, it, like people shouldn't be freaking out that it's going to affect the broader economic situation right I, I agree yeah. um, actually this is it's interesting because um, the I always um, mentioned that you know er, there's a reason why the traditional or people from traditional finance who wants to get into crypto um, have a very hard time the two kind of um, the real uh, what I call traditional finance and real world economy uh, markets are very kind of separate from the the crypto world the, mm. it's crypto world happens in crypto world there's the history there's you know from going all the way you know mining there's 
many different pieces of of the uh, crypto world and many different segments and yet the two are quite ins uh, insulated from each other be mm -hmm. precisely because the going from fiat to token token to fiat is um relatively um i wouldn't say painful but there is a, a certain uh, uh sort of barrier in that yeah. so um yes i i do not believe that the contagion i mentioned is um is kind of only restricted in the crypto area um yeah. part, part of the, the so-called contagion um is because people are pulling their their tokens out of exchanges into their personal wallets like essentially holding it at home instead of having it in the exchanges and it's it's also the trust it's like you don't you know especially the uh, i i echo what yatsu said it's, it's an institutional um kind of a uh, problem where um, literally, people are saying, "Oh, I, I don't know how much you know." Let's say you you're dealing with a business partner, even in cryptos, right? And then uh, you don't know how much money that that the company has in FTX. And now FTX is shut down. You know, they they literally may have 10 million U US or 10 million USDT, you know, sitting in, in the FTX account, and they can't access it. So suddenly they they can become insolvent because of their their uh, whole you know their deposit in FTX. Yeah, yeah, you really took a strong stand. I think I, I contacted a couple of people for this segment, and they were like, "I'm keeping my head down. I'm keeping out of the media." Um, you put out a public statement, uh, and you kind of really lived up to that idea of of increasing transparency by putting all your numbers on the line. Yeah. Yetsu? Still there? Nope. Okay. Can you hear me? Hello? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's back. He's back. Yeah. So yes. did you get, you got my question? Yeah, I got your question. Okay. Yeah. So no, the, the whole point about, the whole point about uh, blockchain is really to, to be transparent around this stuff. And I think the most important thing here was outside of sort of helping calm, calm sort of the, the markets here is the message that I was trying to sort of put out, which a number of my peers are also trying to sort of say is that you know, this guy, Sam, does not represent the industry. In fact, as I said earlier, he is actually more like the enemy of, of our industry, and he has done more harm, not just to our industry, but all the other things that he claims to have, uh, claims to have represented. I mean, if you look at, for instance, you know, those, those private chats that he's been having, uh, you know, which was sort of published by, published by Vox, you know, he basically just uh, said, yeah, I was just saying all this stuff, so, you know, because people like to hear it, because, uh, because you know, that's, that's how people get advantage. I mean, he's a sociopath, right? Um, and, and, and so, unfortunately, unfortunately, we've you know many of us have been had by by basically I guess this criminal activity. Um, and to to the point about sort of you know broader damage, the actual financial impact in macro terms, as you point out, isn't really as big. Um, but because he was on all the headlines, right? He was I think he was on the cover of Fortune and then on Forbes, and he's like everywhere, and you know big Democratic uh, sort of you know supporter and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, as a result of that, he became inadvertently. Uh, the face of crypto, even though everything he stands for is not crypto at all, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, I think, I think, you know, for instance, and, and part of where this sort of debate is coming up is, is giving fuel to all the people who don't like crypto, which are, you know, traditional finance people, a lot of people who, who basically have not liked it really since its inception. But now it's giving them the ammunition to come out and say, well, I told you all it was a scam. Look at this, right? Even, even though they're not sort of missing the underlying point, or maybe they don't want to know the underlying point. Because now they can point out to sort of, you know, this, uh, this incredible fraud and say, look at that. But, you know, it's like the case of Enron, right? I mean, you have bad actors in the space. However, that doesn't mean that the entire energy space is filled with fraud either, right? Sure. Um, and it, it's the same case. But it's also a level of understanding. Energy touches every person in the world, whereas crypto still is a sort of a small segment of the world, comparatively speaking, that is, uh, that is rapidly growing. But comparatively speaking, I, I would say I would add one more thing. And while all of this is happening, the actual underlying growth in activity of opening wallets and activity in terms of, for instance, blockchain games and metaverse 
is actually still increasing quite rapidly, right? Because most of the people who are in that space actually don't trade, right? And they also right. don't trade on FTX, right? But buy an NFT, that doesn't mean that I'm actually going to be trading it on, on something like FTX. So the, the community that was affected were mostly financial people. But the actual regular people in the crypto space that are entering it for other reasons were actually largely unaffected outside of the macro conditions. Is it better to get these growing pains out of the way while it is still not, you know, mass adopted mm. yet? You know, well, I mean, I think part of this is where regulation comes in as well, because I don't think it's just that. Unfortunately, when any time an industry um, sort of shows incredible promise and has incredible sort of, you know, I guess, you know, um, opportunities for, you know, in this case, capitalism, uh, you have also bad actors coming to the place. This is, by the way, not sort of something that happens only in crypto. It happens in technology. If you look at the dot-com bust, if, it happens in the growth of China. I mean, you know, China has, been, has had seen incredible success as a nation. But, you know, how many issues did China have? How many problems and scams and scandals did China have to develop through in order to get to the point where it can be seen as being safe as, as doing business? And it's not because people have, most, like 99% don't have bad intentions. It's the one, it's sort of that single, single-digit percentile of people who basically uh, take advantage of it that need to be weeded out. And those are the ones that's where regulation comes in. Yeah, it's where we, those are the ones we put in the front page and talk about, right? If it bleeds, it leads, and if it bleeds money, it definitely leads. Um, well, not everyone, not everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do report on some some good stories too. Um, where there's regulation, there's got to be enforcement. I've got an email from John. He says, given that FTX was domiciled and based in the Bahamas, how will U.S. law enforcement go after him? Especially since, from what John has read, the group's U.S. operations were a much smaller part of the business and may not have participated in any alleged wrongdoing. Padre, how are the, how are the uh, Americans going to hunt this one down? Uh, I don't think that the American enforcement authorities will have too many difficulties uh, because they will claim jurisdiction in circumstances where they can link it to, the, uh, to U.S. persons or to the U.S. territory. And there's plenty of linkage. So in, in that sense... The fact that it may be uh, the parent company's domiciled offshore, it's not going to be an obstacle in circumstances where U.S. persons have been affected. Mm. Is, is the fragmentation of regulation a problem for the industry going forward? If I want to set up an exchange for all the, the legitimate ones that are still out there, they have kind of a bewildering array of regulators they have to deal with in every country. Um, in some countries like the U.S., it's state by state, in Canada, province by province. I mean, is is there a way that this is, is this going to be simplified at some point where companies can set up and deal with fewer regulatory agencies and get approval across broader jurisdictions? Yes, it will. It's the kind of thing that takes time, but you can already see that there's a degree of convergence. There are um, organizations amongst the regulators at, an, at, at a supranational level where they speak to each other and discuss changes that are coming through. And there are certain parts of the world where it's easier to have a broader uh, territory that has a common approach, if you look, for instance, at, uh, at the European Union in that respect. But even in our part of the world, if you look at the trend that is happening between Singapore and Hong Kong, there's a degree of convergence in respect of the rules there. Mm. Now, does that mean uh, that if you are um, approved, authorized and licensed in one location that you can operate everywhere? That's not how law and regulation works, but it may be that if you want to also open an exchange or conduct certain activities somewhere else, that some recognition is given to the fact that you are, uh, are licensed elsewhere, and that helps you in terms of minimizing some of the, the burden of becoming licensed where you want to conduct business. Okay, guys, we just got a couple of minutes uh, here, and I'm wondering where do we go from here? Uh, 
you know, if the FTX thing gets cleaned up, they've got the new CEO who's a bit of a cleanup expert. Uh, presumably, there will be other incidences in the future. But how, how does the industry approach this in such a way that uh, the industry can continue to grow? You know, people can realize benefits from it, and you know, and the rest of humanity it, it works for them as well. Jesse, um, I think the. Like kind of mentioned before, going back, uh, going back to the regulation part, I think regulation should be on centralized exchange and centralized services, mm -hmm. and and precisely uh, decentralized uh, networks or services are, are they're already very transparent. Mm -hmm. I I I, I, I truly believe in you know having your own wallet and and having having uh, using decentralized uh, uh, exchanges and 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 uh, services are. Uh, everything's on chain. You know, you don't need to regulate very hard. And in fact, if you regulate very hard, you stop people from using that uh, the, the decentralized stuff, mm -hmm. and that that's actually bad. Right? So, um, just just to really quickly recap, is regulate the the centralized exchange services. You know, leave the decentralized stuff alone. And regulators definitely need to kind of uh, work on the homework a bit more. Okay, uh, Yatsu, final word. Well, I mean, I think you know there is, as I said, the main thing about sort of what's happening in blockchain and Web three is about sort of the power of decentralization and the fact that we have digital ownership. You know, I think you know because you know cryptocurrency touches essentially the Wall Street aspect of the metaverse, as it were. Uh, it gets a lot of attention, like you know when when something happens in the markets, people react to it. But for the everyday person, it actually doesn't really impact them as much, except uh, except for the macro. Uh, and just to maybe close out on the regulation. You know, if, you know, and I think this is where Hong Kong has an opportunity. If Hong Kong actually regulates in a positive way and has exchanges that are licensed in this territory, then at least for people in Hong Kong, not only will they be protected, they will not have the need to go somewhere to the, you know, an exchange that's apparently in the Bahamas or somewhere else because of the fact that they can get it back in Hong Kong. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's you know, why go, go far away when you can do it somewhere here, which feels, which is also safer and, and proper. So I think that's the opportunity. And Hong Kong has stated that they want to be basically a virtual asset hub in the region and perhaps in the world. And so, if anything, I think this is an opportunity for the region and for Hong Kong. All right. So we'll definitely be hearing about it more on Backchat in the future. Thanks to Padre Walsh for his smooth Irish tones. He's a wealth of wisdom from uh, the law firm Tanner DeWitt. Yatsu, co-founder and executive chairman from Animoca Brands, a dot-com survivor and digital asset pioneer all-in-one. And Jesse Ko, general manager, blockchain solutions. You can get more of him at Hong Kong U Space and the Hong Kong Productivity Council. We're going on to our next segment. Get ready here at Backchat. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, we're here on Backchat now, and we're going to be talking about an eight-meter-tall gummy bear next to the Chim Tsai Clock Tower. Uh, I think our next two guests have something to do with that. They are Wiz B, an American street artist. Welcome to Hong Kong, Wiz B. Appreciate you having me here. Hey, okay. fantastic. And Adrian Chung is the curator uh, of this uh, particular spectacle, which suggests it's a work of art. Wiz B, uh, you're the artist. Tell us what's going on. Um, so Adrian reached out to me last year, and um, he proposed a project, uh, which I scoffed at initially, because um, whenever somebody reaches out from far, far away with a big project and big dreams, it's often uh, something that doesn't come true. But the more we got to know each other, the more serious I realized he was. And he asked if I wanted to bring my iconic vandal gummy to Hong Kong and if I could find a, a unique way to integrate it into the city. So that was the project that we've been working on that we revealed uh, yesterday. Fantastic. What, what do we look at? Like, give people an idea. If they haven't seen it yet, this is radio after all, uh, give us an idea of what it looks like. So essentially it's eight meters tall. If you could take uh, the uh, uh, gummy bear, essentially, 
uh, juxtaposed on Department of Corrections holding a mugshot plaque um, with uh, almost dinosaur-like horns on its head and a large scale uh, on its back with a tail and its signature Hong Kong red with a giant LCD screen as the plaque, which allows us to kind of uh, integrate different visuals into the installation and the clock tower. And, and what is it made of? I mean, and, and how difficult was it to, uh, to actually transport it here? Um, it was quite difficult to transport here. Uh, the primary material is fiberglass. Um, it was built in full uh, and then deconstructed and then reconstructed on site, which took about four days or so uh, to put back together. And um, yeah, so now we've got our eight meter tall standing uh, gummy bear standing in front of the, uh, the clock tower. And uh, you've made uh, many uh, gummy bear sculptures in the past, and this this one is uh, different because, uh, like you just mentioned, it's got an LED screen. Why why is there an LED screen this time? So about two and a half, three years ago, I got heavy into the digital and NFT space, and I wanted to find a way to start to evolve my artwork and bridge the gap between the two mediums. And this I saw as a perfect opportunity to do something new and to allow us kind of um, something diverse that we could we could show to to the community. So that's why I wanted to take the opportunity to try something new for the first time and um, uh, with such an audience and a platform to see it. But you said it was cra- crazy idea from Adrian Chung. Adrian, why, what inspired you to reach out? I mean, of all the artists and all the gin joints in the world, why why Wisby? Why did you have to bring Wisby to Hong Kong? Uh, good morning. Well, thank you for that question. Um, well, honestly, I think, number one, who doesn't love gummy bears? I think that's, that's one of the, the key. Um, and secondly, I thought Josh's work um, would be very suitable for a public art installation. I think it's very key. One of the key messages as a curator for FIF as well, the First Initiative Foundation, is really to allow people to understand that art is not just found in museums, in exhibitions, and in private collections. We wanted to bring art to everywhere, to everyone. And I think... The gummy bear as a signature work um, can be as simple as you like it. It's just simply as simple as you like gummy bears, or it can be as complex as Josh has um, meaning behind it, right? So I think that's what we thought it would be very suited um, for such a for such an exhibition. Basically, um, we wanted to cross kind of um, the divide between all the generations. They were from kids, the young, and all the like. So I think that's really the the, the main purpose of this exhibition. Right. And Mr. Chen, why put the gummy bear next to uh, the Chim Shou Chou clock tower? Why not the uh, like Golden Bahania Square or, or the peak? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I think the clock tower is uh, really serendipitous. Uh, we found this place, um, as you know, the Hong Kong clock tower is a very iconic historical monument. It has over 100 years of history. And, and we, we know that from uh, Wispy's uh, artwork as well, that he also has uh, a lot of meaning behind his gummy bear sculptures, which basically translates in a simple form, but Josh can probably, Wispy can also uh, relate on that, is about innocence lost, is about the growth of a person. And we know that as the clock tower, it's overseeing a lot of our history of Hong Kong, and, you know, as time passes by, and we feel that time as a concept would really meld the two historical buildings and Wispy's um, art together. So we thought that was a quite a good match. Mm. We talked about the medium. I'm going to go all Marshall McLuhan here. We talked about the medium. Is, is, is that the message, like Adrian said, Wispy? Yeah, so the, the message, um, in short, behind the Vandal Gummy series is innocence lost. And it's juxtaposing the innocence of the gummy bear against Department of Corrections to create a narrative of kind of 
what happened. And I don't like to tell people what to think, especially when it comes to artwork, but I like to create a platform for a dialogue and pose a question for a story that they can create on their own. And so the date on the bear represents a significant turning point in my life, and I like people to think of a day in their life that was significant that may have turned or changed them being exactly where they are today, or maybe they wouldn't be if it wasn't for that day. I mean, maybe maybe that's a that's a good cue to ask you a little bit more about yourself, Wisby. Uh, I've got you know American. Uh, I hear America's a big place. Uh, <laughs> can you narrow it down a little bit for us? Tell us a little bit about your background. So my background is um, I grew up. Uh, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York, and New York City or New York State. Uh, both. So mm. I was born in Lenox Hill Hospital uh, on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, and then when I was young. Uh, my family moved upstate to uh, Westchester, which is about an hour north of the city. But I just couldn't leave. I couldn't be away from the city growing up, so I would always run run away into it until I was old enough to actually live there on my own. Hmm. Um, grew up doing art, kind of got lost along my way as a late teenager. And then in my uh, mid-20s, I got reintroduced into art, and I always had a passion and obsession with street art and graffiti. And a, a friend of mine that was a, that was a graffiti artist asked if I wanted to be his lookout one day when we're hanging out and I said yes and we went out and my eyes lit up and I just you know he threw a sketchbook at me and he was like you're creative why don't you come up with your own why don't you come up with your own thing and, and we'll just get up together and kind of hit the ground running from there and got reintroduced to, to my creative outlet that I'd lost when I was younger because I didn't know what it meant to be an actual artist you know I thought if I couldn't paint or draw what I saw it meant that I wasn't talented because I failed grade school it meant that I wasn't a good artist and then when I reconnected with it as I got older, I found out what it really meant to be passionate about something. And that was, you know, being an artist and, and having a creative outlet. And from there, things have just kind of transpired from street art to fine art to opportunities with um, other companies like working with Red Bull and other music festivals and to showing at Art Basel and then getting into the digital and NFT space, which has completely opened up so many doors and working with uh, auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's now and then now doing international public installations with Adrian and these these incredible organizations and having these opportunities that I could have never dreamed of when I was younger. So if you started in street art and graffiti, that's that's 2D. How, how do you find the inspiration or the courage to move into a new medium to go from 2D into, like you said, installation art, now video, NFTs? I mean, what, uh, you know, how, do, how are you, like I said, courage and inspiration, how do you find that to make the change? A lot of my work is inspired through my daily life experiences, and um, one of the things that has become a common theme, especially over the past decade, is people's constant need for wanting more and something new. You know, with social media and, and Instagram, it's just scrolling. It's just what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. And what I've done with the with the bear is, I've kind of, it's kind of become the perfect muse for me. And so I've, I've wanted to focus on it, and I said, if I'm going to continue to work on this subject, I have to continue to evolve and grow the concept. So that was my promise to myself if I was going to keep using this series. And so I think it's really a testament to showing how deep and how far you can push something without needing to go into the next concept, without needing to have to create something new, but to actually develop, invest, and like really dive deep into exploring something that has limitless potentials. So, you know, when I started with street art and, and the imagery of the Vandal Gummy, and it was a silk screen on paper, and then it went to canvas, and then it went to small sculptures, and, and then big sculptures, and then I had the 
the opportunity to explore the digital medium and animate something that a physical sculpture couldn't actually do, I saw it as an opportunity to continue to grow and evolve the concept. So I guess the courage kind of comes from a promise I made to myself that I'm never going to, I never want to get stuck. And so to keep that promise, I wanted to grow and evolve it. And that's how we went from a stationary, you know, two-dimensional silkscreen to large-scale three-dimensional installations that now have a merger of digital and, and, and traditional uh, physical work. Right. And just very, very briefly, um, Mr. Cheung, I know at this um, public uh, art exhibition, and there's also interactive elements to it. Can you just very briefly tell us about it? Yeah, so as, as Wissy was saying, um, there's definitely a kind of marriage of physical and digital. And for this exhibition in particular, we've actually designed two special um, I guess digital effects. One is an Instagram filter, where one person can basically become a gummy bear head, which was, which was similar to basically what we are seeing at the clock tower. And the second filter would be basically what we're having as giveaways on the weekends, a rare balloon headpiece. So that's a bit of fun. And for people to, you know, take photos of themselves at the clock tower with the art installation. And the second element would be the augmented reality um, element where people can actually go to a link, find out um, the bear itself and actually bring it with them around Hong Kong. So basically, whenever you open the camera, you'll have that bear sitting in front of you. You can manipulate it, you can make it large, you can make it small, you can bring it in your own home. And that really kind of transcends the possibility. You don't actually have to be at the installation to enjoy it. But first, if you're in Hong Kong, you should go to the installation. <laughs> I'm definitely going to go this weekend and check it out. Wisby, American street artist from New York, thank you very much for joining us. Adrian Jung, curator, thank you for bringing it to Hong Kong, guys. All right, we got some new rock and roll for you because we have a new segment here on Backchat. We are launching today on the cusp of the World Cup for the next month, as long as the World Cup runs until Canada wins. We are going to have Adam <laughs> Jung coming in to give us a daily update on what's happening at the World Cup here on Backchat. Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be talking about the World Cup again after four years. As you mentioned, I'm very excited about Canada being in it. <laughs> Uh, lots of stories leading up, of course. Today, the big story is Senegal's uh, Stadio Mane is going to be out of the World Cup uh, because he's going to need surgery for his uh, right leg. He injured it uh, during a German league match. Now, this is the problem. It's a special World Cup because this year they're playing in the winter months. Only a week ago, they were still playing Premier League games and all these league games in Europe. So there's not enough time for these players to recover from their injury. So Mane is out. That's a huge name. Uh, South Korea, uh, Song Hyo Min is questionable. He also got injured two weeks ago in a Champions League match. So there's all that. England also carrying a lot of injured players. Also, of course, all kinds of protests happening over Qatar's human rights records and all that. Teams have said, uh, like England, US, they say they might do things uh, uh, as a way to protest. But uh, I guess all that would uh, be hopefully become a, just part of the background when the football actually starts uh, Sunday night at midnight with the first game when the host Qatar uh, take on Ecuador. So, so what are the teams to watch, really? Well, I'm picking Brazil and Belgium. Uh, I picked Belgium four years ago. They've been trending up. Uh, 
Brazil is always strong. I know that's an easy pick, but they qualify very comfortably. I'll put France in that group as well. France looks very good on paper, though they also have a lot of injuries to their team. Uh, you talk about Belgium. They're in the same pool with Canada. Came in the top of their came in the top of the North American Conference. Um, is that going to be a tough one for them? I'm not on the show every day, so I'm going to get my digs <laughs> in while I can. It's, it's the first time they've qualified since 1986. Totally, and their first game is going to be against Belgium, so that's going to be very tough because Belgium are the world number two side in the world. Yes, Canada qualify as the top group, uh, top team in the CONCACAF. Unbelievable, finishing ahead of Mexico and the USA. Last time Canada were in the World Cup, 1986. They didn't win any of their games. They didn't even score a goal. So a lot of Canadians are saying, hey, it'd be great if we can score a goal. But I feel this team can do more. We have Bayern Munich star Alonso Davies yeah. on the team. He's going to probably play up front. We've got Jonathan David, who plays on Lille. We've got the Club Bruges connection, Kyle Laren and Tejan Buchanan. And the captain, Atiba Hutchinson, oldest player in the World Cup at age 39. Okay, so there's definitely some experience there. So we might get some good action out of them. they got Belgium. They might be able to beat Croatia. Oh, that's hard. Croatia <laughs> made it to the World Cup final four years ago. I know. That's tough. I want to state they're able to sneak in, but it's so hard when you've got Belgium, world number two, Croatia, finalist four years ago in that same group. Yep, so it's going to be tough, but we're expecting some good things from them. Any other uh, potential dark horses? You know what? I'm going to say Uruguay. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think Group H is very tough. I've got South Korea winning that group, mm-hmm. counting that Stone Human's going to play. I can see Uruguay sneaking in there ahead of Portugal, because Portugal has been distracted with all, like, Cristiano Ronaldo saying, you know, how Manu is betraying them. Yeah. Uruguay, um, I like their veteran players, Luis Suarez, mm-hmm. Edison Cavani. They're going to be playing in their last World Cups. So... Who knows? That they could sneak in. I will also add Iran. Uh, England really? will, will play uh, them on, on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iran's a sneaky team. They qualify very comfortably in the Asia region. Uh, they're in a group with England, Wales, and USA. That's a tough group. Okay. And again, maybe some other uh, political implications there. This is going to be a regular segment. You're back on Monday? Oh, yeah, sure. Fantastic. Adam Chung with our new segment on the <laughs> World Cup. Thanks, Adam Chung. All right, thanks to Adam, and thanks so much to all of you for listening, calling in, 